So uh, last Sunday, um, you're going to have to work with me this morning. Uh, last Sunday, I hopped in the car after church, drove to Houston with uh, Tristy and Ben, and pulled in the driveway my sister's house about a minute before she went to see Jesus. And um, it's really sweet to be able to be there with my brother-in-law. And, um, you know, my sister had a five and a half year battle with cancer and she fought super hard. And, um, you know, so it's um, really sad, but just a relief that she's not fighting any longer. And um, I say thank you to all of you who've reached out during the week and, you know, emails and phone calls and texts and cards and, you know, gifts on our doorstep and stuff. Really grateful, um, really grateful for the body of Christ. Um, also, I would ask that you pray next uh, Saturday doing the memorial service and pray that I don't do this. <laughs> uh, but um, I would just pray that I can make the gospel really clear because um, my sister was an evangelist, and um, I, there will be a lot of people there that don't know Jesus, and so I really want to make the gospel clear. Um, to tell you one, one story about her that is just uh, kind of illustrative. When we were little, little, I mean, she, she shared the gospel with me when I was in, in the crib. <laughs> She'd walk out like, does he believe yet? Does he believe yet? You know? Um, we had a little neighbor girl, and my sister went and shared the gospel with her letter to Christ. And um, like an hour later, this girl walks back to our apartment and she goes, Cheryl, I told my mom and dad, you know, that I invited Jesus into my heart. And they said, you, you can't do that. You can't have Jesus in your heart. And my sister said, well, once he comes in, he never leaves. Sorry. And slammed the door. <laughs> so, you know, um, she kind of been doing that her whole life. And, um, you know, it's just going to be a really great opportunity for testimony uh, for the Lord next week. And just pray that we can all uh, get through that and. Um, honor Jesus. So that's all I need to say about that right now. Okay, Romans 9, if you would turn there, Romans chapter 9, verse 30 is where we're going to start in just a minute. Um, I'm going to tell you a story first, though. Uh, we all make excuses, right? It's just kind of human nature. Dog ate my homework, devil made me do it, whatever. Um, things don't go right in life, we make excuses. Last year, I was uh, on a turkey hunt. There's a group of us, we, we go on a turkey hunt once a year, and um, I, didn't, I didn't shoot a turkey, I shot at a turkey. But I, I missed, I missed my shot, and it was interesting because I had this kind of very self-aware moment where after I missed the shot, I immediately began thinking what I was gonna tell the guys about why, why I had missed the shot and that it wasn't my fault that I had missed the shot. You know, a turkey's moving too fast, turkey's too far away, there's too much brush. There'd been a drought, and so there were a lot fewer turkeys, and so this is probably a really, really smart turkey that um, avoided my, my attempt to kill him. Um, but I, I don't know if you're aware or not, but turkeys are considered one of the dumbest animals on the planet. And, you know, and I began thinking, you know, I just, I just can't really acknowledge and admit to myself that possibly I am dumber than a turkey. And, you know, I, I just, I, we, we make these excuses, right, whether it's, it's a failed shot which is really simple, or a failed relationship, 
when things don't work out well, we kind of want to shift the blame, send it to somebody else, make excuses for uh, what's gone wrong. It's really basic to human nature. Uh, and it happens even in our relationship with, with the Lord. We make excuses. But the gospel eliminates all our excuses. The gospel reminds us that our relationship with God is broken, and it's not his fault, it's our fault. God didn't break it. Our sin created the separation. But the gospel is, as we've studied in the book of Romans, it's good news. Because the good news is, even though we've broken our relationship with God, he has not left us in that brokenness. Instead, he sent his one and only son to pay the penalty for our sins, remove that debt, grant us eternal life, and now he can declare us to be righteous. That is, he can declare that we are in right relationship with him as a free gift through faith. God has offered to fix what we have broken, but the gospel eliminates all of our excuses. The gospel eliminates all of our excuses, but it's good news because when we lay down those excuses, we can receive eternal life from God. So we ended last semester in Romans chapter 8 with this really beautiful statement, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's answer is nothing. Nothing, no one ever. We can't even separate ourselves from the love of Christ. If you believed in the gospel of God giving his righteousness or his justice to us through Jesus. But that raises the question, well, then if God's gospel, good news through Jesus is such great news, why is it that his chosen people are outside of his righteousness? Why have they not enjoyed his promises? Because as we noted last week, the early church began entirely Jewish, right? Jesus was a Jew, Peter was a Jew, all the apostles are Jew, Paul was a Jew. The early church on Pentecost is almost entirely 99% Jewish, and Paul began to preach the gospel to the Jews, and increasingly they were rejecting the gospel, so he's turning to non-Jews or Gentiles, and the church is beginning to fill with non-Jews, and the Jewish people are seeming to be set aside. So what's going on with that? Notice what he says here in verse 30, chapter 9. What should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained that righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Paul answers the question, why? And as we looked last week for giving an overview of this section we've just entered into in 9 through 11, Paul is asking and answering the question, has God been unfaithful to Israel? If he made promises to them, but they're outside of his righteousness, has he been unfaithful? And his answer is no. God always acts consistently with his promise. Romans chapter 9, we looked at last week. Israel's current status is consistent with God's promises and his character. That is, God has always chosen to act through a few to bless the many. And he didn't promise that all ethnic Israel would be saved, but those who believed in him. And God has, in fact, used his power, his strength, his might, his sovereignty to Israel's benefit. Romans chapter 10, well, If he chose some and he didn't choose others, then is Israel actually to blame? In Romans chapter 10, Paul's going to undermine all of Israel's potential excuses. Romans chapter 11, even so, their future will be fulfilled according to the promises of God. God will be faithful in his promises to Israel, which have not fully been fulfilled yet. So in chapter 10, what we're going to look look at is three excuses that Jews could make, that any of us could make, for why our relationship with God isn't working or it's broken. And Paul's going to undermine all those excuses, and he's going to point us back to Jesus. So three excuses. The first that we're going to look at, Romans chapter 10, is this. I'm good enough on my own. I'm good enough on my own. My righteousness is good enough to restore and to maintain a relationship with God. Let's read again in chapter 9 and verse 
30. Paul says, what should we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is the Jewish people, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Uh, Tristy and I, uh, one of our diversions is we like watching uh, documentaries. So they're kind of like reality shows without the crazy, right? So we, we, we like watching these documentaries. We were watching one uh, a while back that was about uh, ultra, an ultra marathon race. And uh, in this race, it was through the mountains and I mean, it's like 100 miles. It goes on for days and days. Uh, the guy who was favored to win, sure enough, race starts and he's just, he just takes off and he's way out in front of everyone else. And he hits this first fork in the trail and there's a race volunteer standing there at the fork in the trail who's supposed to tell him which direction to go. But the race volunteer wasn't trained properly. The race volunteer didn't actually know which way he should go. And so the race volunteer pointed him to the left. And he should have gone to the right. So he goes to the left, and he's just he's flying down the trail. And he's miles and miles and miles ahead of everyone else because he's much better than any other runner in the race. But he's actually not ahead of everyone else. He's behind everyone else. Why? Because it doesn't matter how far you run or how fast you run if you're running in the wrong direction. Right? The Jewish people were running in the wrong direction because they were pursuing self-righteousness, which is a myth. Because the standard for a relationship with God is his glory or his perfections, and no one can achieve it. So they're on the wrong trail. They didn't believe they needed Jesus. And you know what? Most people don't believe that they need Jesus because they think of a relationship with God in very transactional terms. My good will outweigh my bad. In fact, my good is better than most of the people around me. So when I stand before God, he'll have to let me in because I'm better than most. I'm good enough on my own. I don't need Jesus. And for the Jews, you know, there, there's, in a sense, you can see why they would reason that way because they were the most religious of all the peoples in the world. They had the law of Moses, the word of God. They had studied it and practiced it and, and tried to live by it. And they were, they were even zealous, right? Paul would say of himself, he'd say, well, if, you know, if the Jews are the best of the best, well, I'm the best of the best of the best because I'm a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, we're the most zealous for the law. We're the most religious. And I'm the best Pharisee of all of the Pharisees. In fact, Paul would say, I was so zealous that I imprisoned and killed Christians. Because what did Paul love? Paul loved himself. Paul was proud of himself. Paul was proud of what he could accomplish. He was pursuing his own righteousness, demonstrating that he was adequate without Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 3. 
not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They're running fast, but they're running in the wrong direction. They're on the wrong trail. I saw this uh, firsthand, first time I went to Israel. Uh, in Israel, the, the, the ultra-religious people, the Hadassim, they, they have kosher laws that they've imposed over all of the country. And there are a lot of Jews that are agnostic or atheist, but the most religious Jews have imposed kosher laws, particularly laws that apply to the Sabbath, and they're laws that demonstrate in their minds their own righteousness. So we're going we're gonna to keep the Sabbath. God said, honor the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. So we can't, we can't create on the Sabbath because God created for six days and then he rested, so we can't create. That means uh, we can't drive a car. Okay, here's the connection. Can't drive a car because when you're driving a car that's got a combustion engine, there's a spark that's created. It ignites the fuel and something is created. So you can't drive a car on the Sabbath. Okay? You can't complete anything on the Sabbath because God completed something on each day, right? And then at the end of six days, he completed his creation. Then he rests. So you can't complete anything on the Sabbath. So you can't make a phone call because that completes a circuit. Okay? You can't complete anything on the Sabbath. Can't do any work whatsoever. So I remember I hopped on an elevator and we went up to the next floor and then the elevator stopped and the doors opened and the doors closed and then we went up to the next floor and the doors opened and they closed and we went up to the next floor and the doors opened and they closed. And I think I was on the sixth floor. Doors opened and closed each one. And then when I got on the elevator to come down, the same thing happened. It stopped on each floor, doors opened and closed. I didn't punch any buttons. I went to the, the, the front desk and what's up with that? And they go, well, it's the kosher elevator. You can't work. It would be work to complete the circuit, to punch the button, to make it go up. So on the Sabbath, we set the elevators for kosher. Now, I'm not saying that to make fun of kosher laws because we all do this. We all create a standard of righteousness that we can achieve so that we can feel good about ourselves and so that we can judge the people around us. That is self-righteousness. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from pride. But if the standard is God's righteousness, God's perfections, God's glory, none of us will measure up. So what was the result for the Jew? Verse 32, it says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So they stumbled over Jesus because Jesus was an obstacle to self-righteousness. So rather than building their lives upon the foundation stone of Jesus, they stumble over Jesus because he's getting in the way of what they want to accomplish in their own name. And they stumble over Jesus. So the goal line for them, in a sense, the objective was to demonstrate or prove their own righteousness rather than receiving the gift of righteousness from God. They missed the point. But they missed the point of life, which is God is giving us life as a gift through Jesus. They just missed it even though God was communicating this to them. Now, I remember early on in marriage, I think I'm better now, but I, sometimes I would just miss the point. Just, for those of you who are married, you may remember these times. Maybe you're living in them right now. We just miss the point. You're in a conversation. You think you understand what's going on, but you miss the point. You know, I, we're saying to Tris, well, I thought we were talking about buying a new vacuum cleaner. And she goes, no, we're talking about how much we love each other. And I go, okay, so I think, like, Every conversation's about how much we love each other, right? She goes, exactly. Okay, now I got it. That's the point, right? What's the point? The point is Jesus and having a relationship through Jesus. Everything that God has done is pointing toward 
Jesus, and he is the way and the truth and the life. There is no way to get to the Father except through Jesus. You can't earn your way. There is no other way. So notice what he says here in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, the end of the law. That's a, that's a really important phrase. This is one you should highlight. Uh, the word for end there is telos, and it's a really rich word. Uh, it's got a lot of connotations. It can mean the end itself, but it can also mean the point, the destination, the fulfillment. Let me give you one illustration from Galatians chapter 3. Paul wrote, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What is Paul saying? He's saying, well, the law was just pointing you to Christ. Christ is the end. He's the goal. He's the point. On the Emmaus Road, Jesus meets with two of the disciples as they're walking, and then he goes through the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and what does he do? He shows them himself. He's the point. He's also the end. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We don't need a tutor any longer that shows us our own brokenness and points us to Christ because now we have Christ. He is the fulfillment. He lived righteously under the law. He fulfilled the law. He paid the penalty for all sins that were committed under the law, so now he can move the law away out of the the, the way and, and put in a new covenant, not an old covenant, a covenant that gives us life, right? That actually removes our debt of sins and places the spirit of God in us, unites his spirit with our spirit, so we are now born again, we are spiritually alive. We don't need law any longer. It's gone, it's, it's ended, because Jesus was the point and he's fulfilled it. That's the gospel, right? And the gospel undermines any idea that we would have that we could earn a righteousness adequate to have a relationship with God. So Paul's first point here is zeal is not enough. Passion is not enough because self-righteousness will never measure up. Excuse number two, faith in Jesus is just too hard. So the Jew might say to himself, well, man, this is just too hard. My whole life I've been trying to earn my own righteousness and now you're telling me just believe. That's just too hard, just too hard to do. Verse five, chapter 10. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. His point in verse five is this. Actually, the law is hard. If you want to live by the righteousness in the law, you've got to practice the righteousness in the law. That is, you've got to do it all. Or as we studied in James last year, if you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. Paul says, no, actually, the law is hard. Jesus is easy. Right? The law is difficult because you're always working and you never know if you've done enough. Jesus is easy. Verse six, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. So Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, God was saying to Israel, I'm accessible to you. I'm available to you. This isn't that hard. I'm right here. And he applies that principle of God's accessibility to Jesus. And he says, look, don't say who will ascend into heaven. You don't have to climb into heaven because God already sent Jesus down. 
You don't have to say who will descend into the abyss. That is, you don't have to crawl into the grave and try and find Jesus because God already raised him up from the dead and he's ascended. Instead, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's right there. All that you have to do is simply believe, right? Just believe. Getting into the family of God is the easiest club to join. You just ask. Just ask. Now, a few years ago, uh, I was sitting in uh, Coco Loco for breakfast. And I uh, expected I'd get a few whoops from uh, college guys. So, you know, every time I go into Coco Loco, and this, I, I see college guys sitting there, they're having breakfast in Coco Loco. It's kind of a favorite place. And uh, I noticed this a few years ago. I noticed that I saw all of these, these guys are just sitting, two guys at a table, one-on-one. And it doesn't look like they're just having a conversation. It looks like they're having an interview. Right, so one guy's asking questions, and you know he's taking notes as the other guy answers. I'm like, this is kind of strange. And I look around, and it's all over the place. There's these guys just sitting, two guys at a table, and it looks like they're having an interview. You know, and I, every time I go back to Coco Loco, this is in the fall, uh, one year it's like every fall. I'm just seeing it. it's over and over again. They're just all over the place. So finally, I asked one of the guys. I go, what's going on? It looks like you're, you know. There's an interview. It doesn't look like a conversation. I mean, it seems like you guys are friends, but it looks like an interview. And he goes, yeah, this is, this is for men's orgs. We do interviews, or it's, sometimes they call it, you know, a SIGs, right? And I go, okay, this is interesting. It's for signature, right? You have to prove that you did the interview. I don't know. And uh, he goes, yeah. So the pledges, freshmen, are doing interviews with the members. And I go, okay, that's good, kind of getting to know each other. I go, how many of these have to do? And he goes, well, they have to do about, about 60. So I go, Wow, that's a lot. He goes, yeah, they have to do about 60 of these interviews, and they also have to, you know, come to a weekly meeting, and then there's other meetings and events they have to come to, whatever. You know, I said, wow, that's, you know, that's a lot for a freshman. I mean, how does that kind of affect them scholastically, you know, with all this extra work they have to do to get into your, your club? And, and he goes, well, you know, we just expect that freshmen will have to repeat fall semester. He didn't say that. I thought that, though, right? I mean, I'm thinking, come on, man, this is just isn't reasonable. It's hard to get into your club. But it's easy to get into Jesus Club. You just say, can I join? Yes. You don't have to do lots of interviews and get signatures. You just ask. Just ask. Read with me. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation... For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is Paul saying? Just believe. It's not that hard. Now, this this little section here is sometimes taken out of context. I want to dig in for just a minute. He is not saying that, that confession and faith are two separate steps. That's not what he's saying. Notice he's following the pattern of the quote in chapter 10, verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Okay, mouth, heart. Verse 9, mouth, heart. Verse 10, he flips it, heart, mouth. He's just following this pattern, and he's using this poetic structure to say the same thing in two different ways. Cry out to God, save me, because you have believed in him. So, What does it mean to confess? Confess in Greek means say the same thing. Say the same thing. God is saying, you're out of options. I agree, God. 
I'm out of options, confess. Say the same thing. You're not confessing your sins to all the people around you, right? That's not, that's not what it's about. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, call out. To confess in the parallelism is the same as call out. Call out is, is an Old Testament image where somebody's in desperate, a desperate situation and say, God, there's nothing else I can do. I need to be rescued. God, save me. Rescue me. You call out to God because you have believed that he is the only one who can rescue you. Specifically, he says, call out to God and say, I believe Jesus is Lord. Verse 9. Confess with your mouth, call out to God to save you through Jesus because he is Lord. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Depends on the context. In some contexts, the word Lord can just mean sir or master. But what does it mean here? Well, he's quoting an Old Testament passage, verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the name of the Lord? The name of the Lord is Yahweh. The great I am. Jesus is God. What was one of the stumbling stones for Jews? Believing that Jesus was God in human flesh. They said that's blasphemy. They tried to stone Jesus because he was making himself equal to God. It was a a barrier to them. And he's saying, no, you have to believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. That he is the only one who can rescue you. And when you call out to him to save you, he will rescue you. What do you need to do? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who paid the penalty for your sin, was buried and raised from the dead, demonstrating that God accepted his payment so that you can have eternal life. Call out to him to rescue you. He is the only one who can rescue you. That's all that you have to do. Jesus put it like this when asked, John chapter 6. It says, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's not saying belief is a work. He's using, he's being ironic. He's saying, yeah, here's the work. The work is don't work. The work is stop trying. The work is received. The work is believe except a gift. It's just that simple. In another place, Jesus would say, let me put it in really simple terms for you again. You just need to have faith like a child. Just be like a child. Not saying kids are perfect. He's saying kids know they need to ask, right? Mom, can I have a snack? I can't, I can't reach it. I can't reach it. Can't do it on my own. Dad, can we go to the park? I can't drive myself. I can't walk that far. I'm, I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have a driver's license. Mom, can I have a kitten? I don't know any better. Save me. Rescue me. Just believe. Second excuse, faith in Jesus is too hard. No, it's not. Just believe. Third excuse, I never heard. Can we go back to that? Third excuse, I never heard the truth. Read with me verse 14, chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So sometimes we just miss it. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but last year we replaced the roof on this building. 
Uh, and it's, we used to have a green roof, and now we have a gray roof. And it's remarkable to me uh, how many members I've run into. They go, oh, I did, did we really? We replaced the roof? I go, yeah, we replaced the roof. And when we replaced the roof, we removed the steeple. And I've had people who are members here for 30 years say, they go, I did, really, we removed the steeple? I didn't even notice we removed the steeple. I've had other members say, we have a steeple? I say, not any longer. We don't have a steeple, Right? Where is it? It's like, man, it's front and center every day. You know, you, come, I, you, you drive in here, you come once, once a week. Sometimes you guys are coming two or three times a week, and you just miss it, right? Well, the Jews are saying, well, look, how could we respond? No one was sent to us. And if no one was sent to us, we couldn't hear the gospel. If we didn't hear the gospel, we couldn't believe. And God says, I have been sending you people for as long as you have existed to tell you the truth, and you ignore them. I've sent you prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, I hope you guys noticed last week that it's really important when you see an Old Testament quote to go back and look at it in its original context. This quote comes from Isaiah 53. What is Isaiah 53 about? Jesus. (laughs) Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant who will shed his blood to remove our debt of sin. Chapter 53, Isaiah starts with these words. Lord, who has believed our report? (laughs) Isaiah goes, you know, I'm a prophet, God, and I've spoken and I've spoken and I've spoken and nobody remembers my sermons. It's very discouraging. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus. God has revealed his son over and over and over again. Acts chapter 8, remember the Ethiopian eunuch? What was he reading? Isaiah 53. And he says to Philip, who's he talking about? Philip says, Jesus. And he believes. Verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have heard. They can't say they haven't heard. Quoting Psalm 19, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. This is the argument he made in Romans chapter 1. God has revealed himself in creation, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. God has shown who he is, even in nature. And nature is speaking to people absolutely every single day. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, Deuteronomy chapter 32, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. That is, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses said, you know, you're going you're gonna to have hard hearts and God's going to allow Gentiles to come in and it's going to make you really jealous. You should have known this was coming. Verse 20, now quoting to, from Isaiah, right? so he moves from Isaiah to Psalms to Deuteronomy, back to Isaiah. Isaiah is very bold and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All day long, I keep coming and speaking and talking and telling and trying to reveal myself because I want to be found. It was Bertrand Russell who was the um, really famous uh, atheist, he was asked one time, he said, what, what if you're wrong? Or just, just what if, just imagine, what if you're wrong and you die and you're standing before God, what would you say to him? So I would say, sir, why didn't you give me better evidence? Creation, conscience, the word, his son, God is trying 
to make himself known. In Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17, he said, from one man he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining their set times and the fixed limits of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul says, look, it, it feels like you're searching and groping for God, but he's right there and he's revealing himself to you because he wants to be found. And so my question for you this morning is, what's holding you back? If, if you've never actually believed in Jesus, what's, what's holding you back? What are your reasons? What are your excuses? What are the barriers? Maybe there are none, and this morning is your moment where you just say, God, thank you, I believe in Jesus. And you stop trying to prove your own righteousness and admit you're not. You're not good enough. No one in this room is good enough. I'm not good enough. Because the standard is perfection, but God offers you life through Jesus as a free gift. And maybe this morning you need to just say, thank you, yes. Or if there's still just some hesitation, some barriers, some things you need to get through, please come up and talk to me, talk to Zach, grab somebody in the Welcome Center. If you came with a friend, sit and talk with your friend. But don't, don't let the day end without overcoming those barriers and believing in Jesus. If you have believed in Jesus, what's your reason for not telling people about Jesus? Hey, this, is, this is it, folks. This is life. This is, this is the gift that God has given us to share, not to hoard, but a, but a stewardship that we get to share with others. It's the greatest privilege that we can possibly have is that we get to pe tell people how they can find uh, life in Jesus. And I don't want us to miss out on that. So as we close, uh, I want you to just challenge yourself and think about that. Am I holding back from believing? Am I holding back from telling anyone else? And as we close, we're going to actually celebrate the gospel. We're going to celebrate communion together, which is uh, the, the visible reminder Jesus gave of a cup and bread that, that just reminds us of, of, of what he's done for us.